11. As we continue our series, Learning from the Lord's Prayer, this is the second in our series, and as Nori already reminded the children, our theme today is, Hallowed Be Your Name. It will help to have a Bible. There are Bibles in the pews if you don't have one, and it's page 1042 if you don't know where to find it. Some words of introduction, first of all. I was quite surprised uh, looking up a BBC news report to discover what the most popular boys and girls' names are in Scotland at present. Apparently, for the last three or four years, the names have been the same. The most popular names are Jack and Chloe. Why Jack should be the most popular name among the 25,000 boys and Chloe 24,000 girls registered in Scotland in 2001 is uncertain. The fastest rising entry in England for boys is Harry, which apparently has nothing to do with Prince Harry, who's really called Prince Henry. It's actually to do with someone I've never heard of called Harry Potter, but anyway. People choose the most unusual names. In fact, I was reading the newspaper this week and I picked up the newspaper and I actually said uh, that it was reported that a baby boy born in China was named after the two main events that occurred on his birthday, March the 20th. He has been called Saddam Sars. Christians often choose biblical names for their children, as with the name Sarah chosen by David and Fiona for their daughter. However, having said that, we're usually careful about which Bible names we choose. I haven't dedicated too many Jezebels or Judases. Sometimes Christians choose a name for their child in the hope that the child will emulate the character after whom they are named. That a boy might be a daring Daniel or a girl, a daring Deborah for that matter. Or that their character might reflect the meaning of their name, that an Irene may grow up to know God's peace, or that a Peter may be rock-like, a rocky. However, there is no guarantee of this, because for us a name is just a name and nothing more. But in many parts of the world, still today, names have a much greater significance than our culture, and sometimes, as people grow up and reach adolescence, they get new or additional names, which then reflect their character as it is seen. I've long thought it might not be a bad idea to do this in our own culture. Uh, some of you will know we were back in Nigeria recently, and I discovered, which I hadn't known, that we lived in a, among a, a tribal community called the Afizere, and that I had actually been given a tribal name. Uh, based on what the people have observed about me. And no, I'm not going to tell you what it is. <laughs> so in many parts of the world, names have far greater importance and significance than they do for us. People usually jealously guard their names. In fact, in some parts of the world, 
You will not discover what a person's real or full name is until they have the confidence that you will not take it lightly or abuse it. And family names, rather than given names, are often zealously protected. And the worst thing a person can do is to bring dishonor on the family name. Now, what is partially and imperfectly true of human names is completely and perfectly true of the divine name. God's name reveals his nature, his eternal nature, for he was not named by someone or after someone, for he is who he is, who he was, and who he will be. He is the eternal God. And that is probably the meaning of the special name by which God revealed himself to his chosen people, the people of Israel. If you know the Bible, you'll recall the story in the Old Testament. Again, it's a story that affected a man called Moses. Eighty years old, spent the last forty years being a shepherd in the desert, and there he is minding his own business, or his sheep, and suddenly he sees this bush that is aflame, but is not consumed. And he approaches it, and out of the fire, God speaks to him and says, Take off your sandals, the ground you're standing on is holy. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Exodus 3, verse 6. And God says, He has seen the misery of his people Israel in Egypt and he is sending Moses back to rescue them from the hand of Pharaoh and bring them out to the promised land. Now Moses, of course, is naturally fearful that the Lord will not accept him and his mission. And so this is what he says to God. If you want to look at it, it's Exodus 3.13, it's coming on the screen. He says, suppose... I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me. And they ask me, what's his name? Who is he? What shall I tell them? And God replies to Moses, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites, I am has sent you. And then God continues, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from one generation to another. And this special name of God, if you've got a Bible there, you may nev never have noticed this, it's easy to miss it, but this, whenever this special name of God is written in our English Bibles, it's written with the word LORD in capital letters. You'll see that in the final reference, Exodus 3 verse 15. The LORD, that's the special name of God. It's sometimes pronounced, in the old days, it was pronounced as Jehovah. Scholars today pronounce it as Yahweh. The reality is no one knows how to say it because it was such a sacred name that the Jews wouldn't even pronounce it out loud. So, coming back to our passage in the New Testament, when the disciples of Jesus say to him, Lord, teach us how to pray. It is not surprising that after the term of address, Father, Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. Father, hallowed be your name. Now, that's not surprising for a Jew with that kind of background that we read about in the Old Testament. I suspect that for most of us, it is very surprising. Hallowed be your name is probably not on the top of the agenda of our prayers. 
Oh, we may say the prayers as we recite the Lord's Prayer, if we know it by heart. But is it really our prayer? And what does it mean? And quite simply this morning, I want to leave you with three challenges from this little phrase, hallowed be your name. What do we mean when we pray, hallowed be your name? Let me suggest three things the phrase should teach us. Here's the first one. When we pray, hallowed be your name, it redresses our over-familiarity with God. It redresses, swings the balance back away from over-familiarity with God. You see, while the Jews and many other religions like Islam emphasize what theologians call the transcendence of God, that means that he's way up there, remote, beyond our understanding. Christians emphasize what theologians call the immanence of God, which means that God is not only up there, but he's down here. He's among us. He's with us, accessible, seen supremely in the fact that he came to earth in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus who, as we saw in our first lesson in the Lord's Prayer, controversially and radically taught his disciples to pray and to use an intimate term, Abba, dear Father. When you pray, say, Father, Jesus tells them and us. However, there is a danger into which we can and often fall. The danger of, indeed, the sin of over-familiarity with God. This is partly because, as we saw in our last study, uh, if you weren't here, the tapes are available. You can actually download it on the internet as well. Uh, we often misunderstand what we mean when we say God is Father. God is like a father, we say, and so we transfer our relationship with our own father or human fathers to God. Whether we have or have had a distant or close relationship with our father, we make a fundamental mistake when we transfer the dynamics of that relationship to our relationship up there with God. Our error is thinking that God is like a human father. The reality is, the truth is, that God is the father, and all human fathers, even the best, are imitations, poor imitations, of the perfect father who is distinctive from, different from, separate from human beings and human fathers. The Bible has a word which describes God's distinctiveness from us, his difference from us. It is the word holy. In the longest recorded prayer of Jesus, you'll find it in John's Gospel, chapter 17, it gives us a valuable insight into how Jesus spoke to his Father. He called him Father. Several times in the prayer you find this. And he prays in this prayer for his disciples, not only those who believe on him now, but for those like us who by God's grace in future generations put our trust in Christ. And he prays for protection when, they're no longer, when he's no longer present. And he addresses God in an interesting way. He says, Holy Father, John 17 verse 11. That's what he says. I will, re I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and coming to you, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. In his commentary on John's Gospel, probably the best modern commentary on John's Gospel by Don Carson, he says, the term Holy Father preserves a view of God that combines awesome transcendence with familial intimacy. 
And that is the point. It is the view of God that is both and, not either or. And so in the Lord's Prayer, when we pray Father, that intimate term is balanced with hallowed be your name. The word hallowed is, of course, connected with holy. The same root word. It reminds us that God is separate from us, both in his nature and his character. It reminds us, as Moses needed to learn, that in the presence of God, you're in the presence of a holy God. The ground on which you're standing is holy. Quotation from the American Bible teacher Charles Swindle is worth repeating from a previous sermon this year. It's what he says. God is holy, exalted. He's the only wise God, the creator, the maker, the sovereign Lord. He is the master. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he had to crane his neck to a God high and lifted up. When Joshua came upon him at the banks of the Jordan, he immediately fell before his feet. When Ezekiel saw him, he had found no words to describe him, groping within the limits of human language to depict him in the clouds among the shining wheels that spun in the glories of heaven. And then he comments, referring to American Christianity, but surely true of ours as well, but not today. Today, God's our pal, our understanding buddy, our ever-available bellboy. No, he is not. The Lord is our God. And so when we pray, Father, hallowed be your name, it redresses any such over-familiarity with God. And something that's really necessary, I think, if you trace the church life, even in the years, the 40 years I've been a Christian, where we have swung from formality and the pendulum has swung to informality. Seen interestingly, not only what we pray, but how and what we sing. One of the significant changes in what we sing recently, in recent times, have been the large number of songs and hymns which address God directly in the second person, singular. You are my God. Now, there's good warrant for that. If you read the Psalms, there are many Psalms that do that, where the psalmist speaks to God directly, as it were. People have said to me, I I really appreciate this. I'm speaking to God instead of speaking about God. However, if we only address God in the second person, we can come to think, often subconsciously, that God is only defined by his relationship with us, and even worse, by his relationship with me. But God is God independent of me, and others need to hear that. And so we also need to pray and sing in the third person as well. Again, seen in scriptures in many places, not least in the Psalms. We must not only say and sing, you are my God, we need to affirm before the world, the Lord is God. Regardless of anything else, he is God. And so we remind ourselves of who God is, not only in our singing, but in our praying when we say, not only Father, but hallowed be your name. It redresses any over-familiarity with God. Here's the second thing that that leads on to. When we pray, hallowed be your name, it redirects our focus towards God. Listen to many prayers, including many of our own, and they read like shopping lists, focusing on the needs of the petitioner. And while such requests are perfectly legitimate, we're encouraged to come to our Father as children with our needs, that is not the place where we should begin. That is not our priority in prayer. In the longer and more familiar version of the Lord's Prayer, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, it's sort of divided neatly. Three petitions followed by three more petitions. The first three focus on God. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. 
your will be done. Only then does our Lord say in our praying, do we turn to our needs, then us, give us, forgive us, lead us not into temptation. And here in Luke 11, given on a different occasion, I believe, the third of the opening petitions is omitted. But the focus is still the same. The prayer begins by focusing on God. Only then do we turn to our responsibility to our own needs and those of others. There's an interesting parallel in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments God gave to Israel through Moses. You can read them in Exodus and Deuteronomy. If you read them in Exodus 20, the first four focus on God. Only the second six focus on us and our relationships with one another. And our prayer concern should always be for God, for his kingdom, for his name, for his will. Let me put it in practical terms. If you're a Christian this morning, why are you a Christian? And why did you become a Christian? Was it just because you had great needs which you hoped God would supply? Peace, joy, forgiveness, escape from judgment and hell. In our limited understanding, we often begin there and God meets us there. But we must not stay there. Why? Because if we do, for one reason, Christianity is the most selfish thing in the world. Now our greater concern, our prior concern, is for God. The God who is. He is the creator, he's at the center of everything, and I only find my significance in relationship with him. God is the creator, I am the creature. God at the center. And that is good for my health, for the health of the individual. Only then do we find our rightful place. It's only then, you remember the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, don't keep worrying about what you're going to eat and drink and what you're going to wear. He said, the people who don't know God, they run after those things. But you seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and then everything else will be added to you. It will fall into significance and place. Peter Lewis in a little book on the Lord's Prayer says, we only find ourselves when we find the one true God. Only as we hallow his name do we remember our own. But this focus goes beyond our personal priorities, important though they are. When we focus on the hallowing of God's name, we are asking that the elevation of God in his holiness, his separation, his difference, his righteousness, his glory, should be the priority of our communities, of our neighborhoods, of our society, of our nation, of our world. And not only have we individually gone astray and banished God from our lives, or at best pushed him out to the periphery, Today our society and world has done the same. Today God is at worst denied, at best is used to legitimize certain social functions in society. While we ignore him in everything else, from the making of our laws to the conduct of our business. For most people, the name of God and his son Jesus Christ is nothing other than a word used in swearing or cursing. The healthiest thing for a society as well as for an individual, is for God to be at the centre and for his name, his character and his revealed word to be the controlling factor and the guiding principle in everything. Sadly, our fallen nature is such that like our first parents, we want to banish God from our lives despite the disastrous consequences that we see as a result. It is for the health of society, of individuals and nations, which are by nature made up of individuals who are self-centred 
rather than God-centered. And when we pray, hallowed be your name, we're asking God that he might rectify that situation. That people might come to regard his name as holy. And so live in that reverent fear of the Lord, which the book of Proverbs in its wisdom tells us, that fear of the Lord which is the beginning of wisdom. We are asking that the situation on earth might increasingly mirror the situation in heaven where God's holiness is the focus of all the angels as we sang in our opening hymn. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory on earth as it is in heaven. So we look behind the symptoms, the personal national disasters that we see in the media and we begin to address the cause as we pray, hallowed be your name. If only people lived under the protection of their heavenly Father who is both loving and holy, what a difference it would make. So is that all we do? And you go out of here and say, right, put that stuff in my prayer list, I'll pray that, and I hope it works out. Well, no, not really. Well, you can, providing you recognize one thing, a third thing about this prayer request. Thirdly, when we pray, hallowed be your name, it reminds us of our responsibility towards God. The challenge to practice what you preach actually originates with Jesus, who spoke to the religious leaders of his day, particularly the Pharisees, who were regarded as the kind of elite, the evangelicals of the first century. And he criticized them because they were putting on a pretense. He called them hypocrites, hypocrites in Greek. Hypocrites in Greek, hypocrites in English. The Hippocrates was an actor who put on a mask. He learnt some lines, said them, and then he went back to his real life. You might be playing a murderer in a play. You don't go around afterwards and murder people. There's a separation between the play, the, the, re, the act, and the reality. And Jesus said, you're playing at religion. Oh, you're saying all these religious things, but your actual lives, they don't reflect that at all. So he challenged them to practice what they preached. And I want to extend this, or at least narrow it down maybe, from what we preach, what we say to others, to what we pray when we pray to God. And also to others sometimes when we corporately pray a prayer like the Lord's Prayer. I want to leave with this challenge this morning that we need to practice what we pray. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we're saying as it were to God, Lord, I long that your name might be regarded as holy. That people might understand who you are. Might understand who your son Jesus Christ is. But how will people regard God's name as holy unless those who bear his name reflect his character? What is it, we've said, that distinguishes God from us? Holiness, separateness. What is it that distinguishes us who bear the name of Christ? It should be personal holiness. It should be our character. The Apostle Peter, writing to Christians from a Gentile background, reminds them of this challenge to holy living what he says. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, God, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Old Testament, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. In other words, he says, live a different lifestyle. You're living in an alien society. The way that you behave and think is countercultural to the way the world thinks. It is like God. 
And people, as Norris so clearly explained to the children, people will see that distinctiveness. If we claim in our prayers that our priority, our greatest desire is that the Lord's name is honoured, is that reflected in our holy lives? Or do we dishonour the Lord's name by the way we live? Not just in what we say, it should be seen in how we conduct our business, how we spend our money, how we live our relationships, how we play our sports, how we drive our cars. Is it seen in our attitude which causes people to see that we have a different focus, a different priority in our lives? Many years ago when I was a postgraduate student um, down in England, a colleague and I, a Christian colleague and I, arrived in the university department where we were studying only to see that it had been broken into. And a typewriter, this is pre-computers, friends, a typewriter had been stolen, a typewriter belonging to one of the girls on the course, one of the young women on the course. To our surprise, when she was told that a typewriter had been stolen, never forget what she said. She said, well, never mind, perhaps the person who stole it had a greater need than me. My colleague said to me, she's either a Christian or a communist. we discovered she was the latter, a committed communist. She practiced what she preached. I kind of was challenged. If it had been my typewriter, what, what would I have said? Would my response have been the same? That is the challenge, the challenge for the Christian of practicing what we pray. Is our holy living seen in our distinctive behavior? And if you read the New Testament and the letters that were written to the other Christians, this is really what they're all about. Time after time, these Christians were challenged, be different because you are different. Live differently. Here's an example, one from Paul writing to the Christians in the Greek city of Philippi. Philippians 2. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Stop there for a minute. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Sometimes forget that by the time we get down to the bottom stairs in the coffee lounge. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God, your heavenly Father. Without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Isn't that a great picture? It's a dark world. And God has put these stars in the universe and they're Christians. And their light shines and they seem to be different. And when we do that, something amazing begins to happen. It's pretty obvious if you think about it. As people see that we hallow God's name by our distinctive lifestyle and behavior, you know what happens? More people are attracted to the light. And more people begin to hallow God's name. And then amazingly we discover the prayer is being answered. One by one as more and more people respond and begin to hallow God's name. Then our prayer, hallowed be your name, is answered. As others change their priorities, they put God in his rightful place in the center of their lives so that others hallow God's name. Let me say something in closing, almost finished. We began thinking about names, the names that we give to our children. And I know there are many folk from different parts of the world, so just excuse me if this doesn't apply to you, but in our culture here, we all have a family name. Call it a surname. We all have a name given to us by a parent. It's still called a Christian name. I'm waiting for some politically correct act to be passing you to call it something else like given name or I don't know what they'll call it, 
register name, probably, something like that. But we have these two names. Christian name, a family name. Now I want to leave you with this final challenge. Are you a Christian only in name or by nature? You see, God sent his son into the world to make it possible for you to become a member of God's family so that you might be adopted, the Bible uses this wonderful picture. God might adopt you into his family as his child. That's why he sent his son into the world, to pay the price, the entrance price, so that we might enter God's family. But there's something else wonderful. God sent his son into the world so you might join his family. God sent his Holy Spirit into your life to make it possible for you to be holy. We talk a lot about the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. The main thing the Holy Spirit does is to make us holy, to make us like Christ. Whatever other experience we may claim, if we're not becoming more holy, then it's not the Holy Spirit that's at work in our lives. And when you turn from your self-centered way of life, where God is on the edge or ignored or denied, when you put him at the center, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, then you put God in his rightful place in your life and you become a Christian, not just in name, but by nature. As you turn from your sin, God puts his Holy Spirit in you and makes you a new person and you begin to live the kind of life that is humanly impossible so that people say, wow, something different about you, what's happened? Well, it may take time, but there's a process at work making us holy and as we do that, only then can we say, and do we say, Father, hallowed be your name. I hope that's true for me and true for you as well. Let's just pray together.